Hey, Mike, what do, do you reckon, if we started off in Hong Kong and used telemedicine, we can make it all the way around the world and back to Hong Kong in an hour? Do you know what? I reckon we can, and I've got just the person to help us. Her name is Jessica May. Let's get her on. We need to ask the important stuff. So can I, mm. can I ask? Or, or will you? Go on then. Jessica, I know our, uh, our listeners, our viewers will want to hear this uh, because you've, uh, you've been a vet, you qualified in 2012. So you've been a vet for over 10 years. So could we ask you, please, just for the record, uh, what's your favourite bread? My favourite bread? Mm. Well, I love a good seedy loaf. So something brown and... Uh, crusty and wholemeal and it feels like I'm I'm doing good for myself so those are those are very tasty for me you cut the end off when it's still warm and slather it with butter don't you I I, I like the crust um, I must admit that I'm not a I like cooking but my sister is a real whiz at uh, dough and yeast and bread making in the kitchen so um, she did try making fika buns the other day and that was a first attempt and they were very very tasty so um, yeah I will happily uh, be a, a taster so, so fika buns are they the same as bao buns the um, steamed uh, no so I don't know how you make a bao bun but they're kind of very white and very soft and very light and they're, uh, and they're made in Hong Kong and Asia, aren't they? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and they are. They're, 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 they're great. I make them. They're the great fun to make. But no, I, ah. I know what figure bugs are. The, the Swedish ones. The um, yeah, yeah. Uh, they look like a knot. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And you have uh, cardamom or cinnamon or really delicious yeah, flavors. Cardamom can take or leave. I, I I love cardamom crushed up in a curry. Mm. Uh, so so talking of. Talking of uh, bao buns and Chinese cookery, tell us about Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Oh, wow. Um, I recommend it to anyone on a trip, either directly to go and visit China or on their way through to anywhere else, um, like Singapore or Australia or Japan. You can mm-hmm. cherry pick the best bits in three or four days and um, see some incredible things. And I absolutely loved my time there. I spent nearly two years there. And uh, it's it's a huge melting pot of people from all over the world. It's a super exciting place. Sure. Wow. So now, when was this? Was this before uh, the, the, the British were kicked out or uh, were you allowed back um, in? <laughs> <laughs> they handed, uh, the, the British handed back Hong Kong to the um, Hong Kong uh, people in 1997, I was believe. It, was it so that long ago? It was a while ago, yes. Hey, but so you're right, it is, it's last, a protracted... Last year, was it? Or a year before? 1997, my goodness. <laughs> I, you, but you're right, I believe it's a protracted handback period yeah. of about 50 yeah. years. So um, we're still in that period. But I was there from 2014 to 16. Um, so about six or so years ago. Never somewhere that I thought my veterinary career would take me. Uh, that's for sure. No, and did you... So what took you there? So I was uh, an equine vet right. and I just I was doing an internship at Bell Equine in Kent and I was reading through the vet record and the Hong Kong Jockey Club mm-hmm. had a fantastic article and it racing wasn't something that is in my background and one, wasn't something that we really saw as caseload um, at Bell Equine so I thought it would be a great compliment for for learning and so I thought why not it was one of those spontaneous decisions and 
it sounded and just felt right. It just felt exciting. So I just went mm-hmm. for it. And, and did you work for the uh, Hong Kong Jockey Club for those two years or did you do other things? Yes. So yeah. I was an intern for them. <clears throat> they have an 18 month internship program. And so I went out to do that and they have a racing team and an equestrian team. Um, or they did when I was there. So um, the equestrian team look after the riding schools, the private and jockey club associated riding schools. And then the racing team, which is a larger team, looks after the uh, horses training and racing. They like their gambling, don't they? Mm. They do. Yes. Uh, And the jockey club controls the football betting as well as the racing betting. So um, people will come from mainland China in order to bet. Um, and obviously you've got Macau next door to Hong Kong as well. So it's a, a very popular area for gambling, I believe. Yeah. And are most of their um, uh, race courses, actually, they're, they're not you know, proper grass ones, are they? They're, they're inside on uh, AstroTurf. Is that right? Or what, like, oh, yeah. like velodromes? Yeah, exactly. Do we call them a hippodrome? Maybe. I'm not Ooh, sure. They did tra- chariot good. racing in hippodromes, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but those were on sand, I believe, from, from ancient Greek uh, and R- Roman times. Um, but in Hong Kong, they take great pride in being uh, outdoors on grass. And they oh, race right. most of the year, except a short off season in the summer where they're doing grass um, upholstery. They having, I believe they have two different types of grass um, intermingled and planted and a huge track team um, doing development scientific grass production to make sure the track is absolutely perfect for racing conditions. Wow. Gosh, amazing. You don't think of all that um, money and, and technology, do you, going into uh, uh, that side of horse racing? You, you hear of genetics. Uh, being a huge yeah. thing and, and food being a good thing and, and the training they do with the horses. But never really thought of the uh, the types of grass being a, a big thing. I think when you've got a huge gambling public who need confidence in order to take part and enjoy their sport, you've got obviously the jockeys and the horses uh, racing, but you've also got the conditions. And in the UK, I think we struggle with the weather to maintain um, – uniform conditions throughout the year and across different the, the same tracks and things like that. Whereas in Hong Kong, you've got, um, to some extent, more manageable weather. You've got the ability to irrigate. You do have really, really heavy um, rains, typhoons, et cetera. But I think it's potentially easier to manage those conditions and make sure that the going is as equal and fair as possible. They have very tight racing in Hong Kong, um, which makes it really exciting from a you know handicapping perspective. Ah. And so did you take to betting when you were out there? <laughs> I definitely wouldn't have been allowed to, uh, employed by the jockey club. Um, and it's definitely not something that I would uh, be interested in doing in the UK either. Um, I'm one of those kind of people who, if you give me a five pound note and um, we all go to the races for the day, I'll probably keep it in my pocket, buy a coffee or an ice cream or something like that rather than gambling. <laughs> Cause you know, the, the bookies at the end of the day, always uh, they, they don't um, struggle for business. So uh, mm. yeah, I, I like to win and I don't think I'd be very good at gambling. So the, <laughs> so, so the system is you're locked down as part of the jockey club. Are the, are the jockeys Absolutely. allowed to mix or are they locked down as well? Uh, how do you mean mix? Well, maybe I'm maybe I'm a bit biased here because um, 
The other gambling sport that I know is Kieran racing in Japan, which is bicycle mm. racing. Ah. And for the season, the cyclists are locked up. They don't have wow. mobile communications. They don't communicate with anybody outside. At the start of the race, they will declare that uh, I'm going to lead from the front and go for it with two laps to go. Or I'm going to sit at the back and attack in the last 200 metres. And then the gambling public will bet on each of the races associated with that. Now, obviously, in the UK, you walk into a local pub in Newmarket, you're going to bump into a jockey somewhere or a trainer or, a, mm. or the vet or, or whoever. So I was just wondering what level of, of lockdown there is or regulation there is. So I wasn't aware of any specific rules because the jockeys and the vets and the stable teams, the trainers um, all worked and to some extent socialized together. Um, there wasn't there were there were no rules preventing that kind of thing. So there would be stable dinners to um, bring good luck for the season, to celebrate wins, et cetera, et cetera. And everyone would be invited together. Um, of course, there were race days where we'd go for a, from a social purpose um, and we'd go together with colleagues from different areas of the, the jockey club. So um, as far as I'm aware, that wasn't the case. And we all lived on the race course or at the race course uh, in buildings which were mingled between vets and trainers. We had an intern flat as well um, and jockeys as well. So uh, yeah, we, it was a, it was one big um, community. Okay. Wow. And so why do you no longer work with horses? That's a really good question. <laughs> so I, I came I back I to the I don't know why I don't because they always hate me and kick me in the head, but um, yeah. that can't be everyone's experience of working with horses. No, not at all. And I mean, I really enjoyed working with horses and work with some incredible vet teams, um, some beautiful parts of the world as well. So I finished up working on the Welsh borders, which is home for me originally. Um, and I've, I've always been involved. Uh, I've always enjoyed veterinary and business. And to bring the two together, for me, at some point, I feel was going to happen right from back from university time. And um, I was in practice and I saw the opportunity for telemedicine to enhance what we were doing. So as an equine vet, I was driving about two to 3,000 miles a month, which felt like a, a huge amount of time that I could put to better use. Obviously, it was lovely in the summer driving around the green fields and the hills, um, but actually it, I felt like I could be using that time better. And one of those ways was a huge list of callbacks or admin to do at the end of the day, which I hadn't got to during the day. And it was clients who probably could have been seen um, on a yard that day or needed to be seen, clients that needed or could have picked up prescription medication um, from the clinic earlier that day, people who needed more timely advice. And I thought we weren't um, meeting their needs in that way very well. So I thought, oh, what's this interesting telemedicine thing? And I'm a, I'm a diligent vet. I like to keep my records, but even I was struggling to make sure that I brought pictures from WhatsApp, videos from email, and the various other ways by which clients communicate with us and bring them into one place in a nice, neat um, workflow. So uh, at that point, I thought, well, this is a great opportunity to go and explore that. So I met First Vet um, CEO David Preen at that time, and mm -hmm. they were just launching in the UK. And I thought it was a great opportunity to go and just do something completely different. And that's now where I'm staying in, in vet tech as such. And so tell us a bit about First Vet. So First Vet is a Swedish telemedicine company. 
It's an independent company. So there's a whole spectrum of telehealth providers and platforms out there, which will people will be increasingly familiar with um, from WhatsApp, you know, and Zoom, et cetera. And First Set's an independent um, telemedicine provider working in seven different countries, originally from Sweden, where there's 90% pet insurance, which is amazing. Um, mm. Compare and contrast that with 30% approximately in the UK, and then in Germany and the US, only about 1%. And their model is to provide teleconsults through pet insurance as a free value-added service to owners. Mm-hmm. pet owners um, and have veterinarians working as a, as consultants on the platform to deliver that care and then obviously channel pets into vets when they need to go and provide advice and triage. Um, so that's that's a little bit about First Vet. Interesting. I, I wonder, it would be in the insurance company's best interest just to say, no, you don't need to see a vet. Potentially, you could say that. But actually, if we look at the way that it's delivered, and ultimately, we've got veterinarians in First Vet's case, sometimes veterinary nurses in other cases, other platforms, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're all trying to deliver care in the pet's best interests. And I think where you have vets with the ability, with with no extenuating factors, with the ability to simply practice um, good veterinary medicine. You've got this, what I describe as a beautiful golden triangle with the pet, the vet and the owner. You've got the pet at the center of it. And when you're simply needing to answer the question, what does this pet need next? And you don't mm. um, conflict the veterinarian's clinical decision making with anything, any requirements as such, then I think you've got a model where you're delivering really good care. And I think it would be a very serious step for insurers to um, try and lead veterinary consultants to alter their opinions in any way um, other than simply purely around pet welfare and clinical um, clinical excellence. Telemedicine is something that, that has been going on for decades to, to certain extents, but really we've only just heard of it since COVID because we weren't allowed to, uh, to see our clients. We'd, uh, we'd grab the pets from the car shouting, go away, you dirty, and uh, drag them into the practice and then give them a ring to say, yeah, we, we've, we found out the problem. It's, uh, it's, it, it needs a, a jab or something. So I'll bring it out and you bundle 50 quid into an envelope and, uh, and hand it to me. And, and that, that's how telemedicine kind of started working. And then, then Zoom became a thing. And so we were Zooming our, uh, our clients. Um, and some vets love it, some some hate it. I'm, I'm kind of on the on the sidelines of it because, as you can see, I feel fairly comfortable zooming. But I like to to feel the pet, and I, and I like to get the non-verbal cues from clients that I think you don't always get from from Zoom. So, what, how, how do you fill in the gaps, Jessica? Well, it's a very good point, and I definitely don't think telehealth as a way of working is for everyone. But certainly it is a game changer for people who it does suit uh, and who are, I would say, maybe more extroverted characters um, or people who want to learn or have an interest in learning about technology and and new ways of working. So in order to examine a pet, you're not able to be hands on in this instance. You obviously have to learn new skills in order to help that pet owner get the information that you need to help make the decision. It's also very empowering for a pet owner to learn that kind of thing. And they can then spot things hopefully sooner the next time and seek help earlier in, um, you know, something else happens. Um, So it's definitely not something for everyone, but it is 
something that I can see in the future is integrated into our pet care chain. And when it's integrated in the right way, it can really add an amazing value. As you said, it's we've been remote consulting or asynchronously consulting for a long time, even in the form of a written letter um, mm-hmm. on the on the telephone uh, of old. But um, it's just evolved. And I think I bundle it into this area of digital care and providing modern pet care. And it's something that owners are familiar with. It's certainly not for all owners either. It's not for all clinical cases. There are definitely areas where we need to learn that it's not appropriate and areas where it is appropriate. Human health can give us some really interesting examples um, and, and cases to follow. And I'm really excited to see that here in Orlando at VMX, it's no longer a, a niche topic or a topic that's not talked about or very binary. Do we do we do telemedicine or not? There's lots of interesting discussions going on. For example, veterinary dermatology workshop and other mm-hmm. roundtables and discussions where we we look at the nuances of how we best integrate it safely and effectively. Um, so it's it's very exciting. Are there any are there any good or bad examples you can give us from this? Because Julian's got millions of stories from Mrs. Jones bringing Tricky Woo in and bit him on the leg and et cetera, et cetera. Telemedicine, you're just sitting there at this behind a camera. Yeah, how do you use your anecdotes? Yeah. <laughs> How's well, the James Herriot of the future going to write his memoirs? Yeah. <laughs> well, there are always interesting cases. We see uh, in telehealth a lot of vomiting and diarrhea cases. So, uh, <laughs> That's obviously. That's sitting at the other end of a camera for. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lots of pictures and luckily no mm-hmm. cleaning to do. Right. Um, but I would say one of one of my favorite aspects is that owners are extremely familiar with this way of communicating and they quite frequently or not infrequently drop their guard or they're super relaxed. And one thing that uh, I have seen in the past, in my experience, is owners who don't always have enough clothes on for their consultation. <laughs> <laughs> Which is always a little bit of a shock, day or yeah. night. Um, and <laughs> for, for the vets, I, I feel sorry for them when when it happens to them. But a client might be calling a vet for advice, just like they would call NHS 111 in the middle of the night. They're in bed and, you know, they may be um, not not fully dressed. But when they connect with their vet, they probably forget that because they're worried about their pet. They want their uh, answer question answered mm. and so they don't forget that they're not wearing shorts so I always said to the vets just you know just gently ask the owner to pop some clothes on before you continue the consultation you can just gently avert your gaze if you don't find it um you know good to to keep eye contact and um we we did have also one vet who an owner took them to the loo on the video call with no. them. And I don't I don't think you'd even do that with your doctor. So um it's an unfortunate <laughs> I don't, I don't part do that of it. with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really understand why it happens, but it's quite it's quite amusing. I can, I can just see this. I can, I can just see this. So working through the notes here, I can see that Billy is no longer entire. And looking at the screen, Mr. Jones, I can see that you still are. Yes. Put <laughs> <laughs> those two away, please. Yeah. Oh, geez. No, no, that needs to go to your doctor. <laughs> while, while you're here. 
So you had any so, particular success stories doing hmm. this then, Jessica? Um, I would say there was one particular case I remember that springs to mind, and it's one where we actually had to, as a community, we were great at sharing experiences so this is a new way of working for everyone we've all got to learn how to do it correctly and safely and i think that sharing is super important so this is actually a case where we had to seek rspca guidance um and speak to the royal college and make sure that we were going about things in the right way because we often came against circumstances where it was novel and therefore we had to figure it out in the right way as we went and write right protocols type type yeah. approach or guidelines so this was a case where um, the owner had a young cat with a fracture um, and they had sought medical advice in a clinic. A fracture had, of a hind limb had been diagnosed, but then they'd taken the cat home to consider the options. And uh, we saw that the owner had subsequently purchased pet insurance. And we had therefore details, but the difficulty online is obviously you you haven't got the animal, the owner there in person. You don't have a physical address necessarily. And so you can't, if you lose that confidence of the owner, they could disappear and make, then the animal wouldn't necessarily get the guidance and support and care that you can provide. So we contacted the necessary organizations for advice and guidance to try and make <laughs> sure this cat got back into a clinic. And we did manage to follow up with the physical clinic that had done the initial um, x-rays. Mm -hmm. We managed to make sure that they were able to follow up with the owner and that everyone understood um, and, and tried to help to get that owner um, into the practice, which they did eventually present to another clinic. Um, and by which time I believe the fracture had stabilized itself. But this was a really challenging situation mm -hmm. for the consulting vet to be in because you feel quite powerless from a distance to be able to do anything. You can't administer pain relief. You can't, um, you know, keep the owner in the consult room and go through the requirements for, you know, urgent intervention. And you don't want to lose that client to follow up in some physical sense. So we worked very closely together. We made sure we had a very timely follow up. Um, and ultimately that pet did get back into a vet, but, you know, not soon enough. So there's there's probably some future learnings there, but that was a, an interesting case that definitely will stick with me. Yeah, I've, it, it, it's awful, isn't it? That, that um, I guess even when you see a client, you, you aren't sure whether they're going to uh, take your advice. But when you aren't actually seeing them, you're one more step removed. Now, we, we had our investigators when, when, um, uh, when we were looking into your background that sounded more frightening than it actually is. Our producer told I'm, I'm concerned. I'm quite worried and, uh, now. <laughs> now, we, we were told there was a, a story about a chameleon that um, didn't have a particularly good outcome, but it was a nice story nevertheless. Is that? Yes, yes. You've got very good, good, thorough researchers. Um, this this chameleon was probably my first ever teleconsult um, at First Vet, and the owner was needing emergency care his son had got this baby chameleon for his birthday and he was just searching on google for advice because this poor baby chameleon was changing color rapidly and looking very distressed because it had got its tongue stuck out and 
I'm not an exotic set. I'd come from equine practice. And so I did what every uh, qualified veterinary professional would do and know their limits. So I had, I remember having the client on the phone and he'd found a customer support number. He hadn't found a video call option. So I had the customer on the phone by my ear. I had Dr. Google on my laptop. And uh, I soon decided that the chameleon needed urgent attention in a physical practice. So um, I looked up the owner's postcode they gave me. And I said, look, your nearest exotics practices are here, here and here. Um, So you need to pick one and go there straight away. And unfortunately, the chameleon was euthanized because the tongue was broken. Um, I believe that you can suture them back in place sometimes, but uh, not in this instance. But we were able to get the chameleon in to see a, a vet in person as quickly as possible. So, you know, that was my probably yeah. the one and only chameleon I will ever see in my career. But uh, I now know a bit more about them, which is uh, which is good. There we go. Well, it must have been karma. <laughs> karma chameleon. It's not, it's not worth it. I won't do those. Any. I'm sorry. <laughs> did, I got did that I one. I wasn't feeling very well. <laughs> <laughs> now we're we're going to get on to some other aspects of your uh, of your life in a moment. That's right. But I, I just had a couple of questions uh, about. Um, oh, you you love technology? Is that fair to say? You love appropriate That's- technology, perhaps I'd say, you, and and exploring how that can help uh, you as a vet and the profession. Is that? Well, I do, but it's definitely not something I ever set out with the intention of pursuing. I would not say I'm a hugely techie person as such, but I see the potential for it to help us to improve and advance. And I think that's super exciting. As a a vet student and, and as a child growing up, my only intention was to be a vet, and that was definitely a clinical. Uh, mm. on the ground vet delivering care at the coalface. But when I was in practice, obviously, you just don't quite know what's going to come up and what opportunities might present themselves. And for me, a wiggly career path is is definitely uh, something I would choose to do again. So I did the BSc vet sciences degree at the uh, Royal Vet College, and then I did the graduate vet medicine program. So that always, already produced a few, added a few mm. kinks into my career. But I think that technology is is super exciting, and I certainly enjoy learning a little bit more. I'm certainly not going to be anywhere near a, a coder or anything like that, mm-hmm. but I enjoy bridging the gap between veterinary clinical care and the tech world and translating that. And I think it's a really important piece that I always say to businesses or startups that maybe don't have a veterinary influence um, in within the business structure, that in order to integrate these types of really cool technologies, we have to translate that into our area. Um, Mm. So to have those people within the structure, either sitting in the organizations or between them on an advisory level, I think is super important. So that's where I find myself at the moment, but um, it's, it can be a little bit surreal. So from what age did you want to become a vet? I was one of those ones that watched James Herriot. Okay. uh, so I grew up with James Herriot and from the earliest age, I would say the earliest age I can probably remember is about eight or nine. And my mum gave me some wonderful career advice, which I think, you know, is, is probably nice for everyone. It's do something that you love. 
And at the time I was living, we lived on a farm and the only thing I knew was animals and I'd seen vets coming to the farm to work with animals. So I was, uh, you know, smitten and that was the only thing I was ever going to do. Wow. You're living the dream. Living the dream. Absolutely. I love being a vet. I love being in the industry. Um, I love the fact that it's small and we're a tight knit community, even though, you know, I'm currently in Florida you know, there's people here who are from the UK and, and we link up and we're all talking about the same thing on a global level. So yeah. I, I really enjoy that aspect. It is a, it is a global village, isn't it? That profession. Global village, yes. <laughs> Where did the interest in technology come from then? That's a good question. I, I don't really know other than around about five years ago, I was curious, as I say, about how telemedicine could help us solve some issues we had in clinic, um, mm. you know, from observations generally. So I think that's where it grew from. It's the opportunity to help us solve problems and to create a sustainable vet profession for the future. We're very familiar with the challenges that we're currently facing. So them are the same here in the US. And I think if we can leverage new ways of working flexible working for example technology then we bring it all together and it's it's complex it's challenging it's certainly there's not one solution that's going to solve all these problems but working together and embracing new ways of working is certainly going to get us a good way in the right direction i think so so you mentioned sustainable the thinking of the, the the individual vets being sustainable from a mental health and, and, and compassion fatigue point of view, or you thinking of the antimicrobials being sustainable, or, or the environment being sustainable, or, or all of that and more. I mean, there are definitely people who are working at different facets of of sustainability, and I know it's a buzzword, but I think for me, it's about having colleagues who feel able and want to stay in the profession on a long-term basis. We know we lose a lot of colleagues from the profession uh, early on. And I think that if we make our ways of working easier, for example, you know, not following a day with a night shift and then another day shift and doing the weekend, um, small example, but if we can hmm. start improving that and reducing burnout, improving mental health, then for me, that is sustainability in terms of veterinary workforce. We want to make sure it's a, a long career path for people in whatever shape or form they want to take it. Because it has changed as a profession in, in the 25 years I've been qualified. It, it must have changed in, in the time you've been qualified uh, also. Um, for the best or for the worse? Oh, that's so, a good question. I'm old enough to have perhaps a different view. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're I think just old we... and jaundiced, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't bring up the jaundice. I don't right. drink that much. <laughs> it depends what Zoom filter that you've got on or your ambient uh, environmental lighting. Hey, I've, I've changed it to, to pink from yellow. <laughs> Excellent. Um, <laughs> but no, going back to the question of, oh, I can't remember the question. Better or worse? For better or for worse? Obviously, we've got some significant challenges, which are a, a pattern that is seemingly in a, in a negative direction. But I think that we have the ability as well to build on our experience from COVID 
where we had to work differently. We had to use new tools. We have a responsibility to pay that forward. And we're at a real crossroads in so many ways in terms of making a difference and making a change to how we work so that we can uh, change these trends and, and switch them to be positive. But I think if you if you look at things as a whole, we've got some amazing people doing amazing things in our industry and making a huge difference already. Um, so I'm I'm personally very excited. And from my experience over the last 10 years, I think we've we've definitely taken steps forward um, in some ways in the right direction. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was only speaking in a commercially sort of way, actually, when I said uh, that I detected there are worse things. Nothing can ever really be worse. It's always a progression, isn't it? And we can't change the ultimate direction that progression is going to take until we determine our endpoint for it, if we have a desired endpoint. And so I was chatting with Mike earlier, just before we started the, uh, the Zoom, about, you know, did we envisage universities of the future being so tech and and um, Zoom or whatever comes after Zoom oriented that already students don't always go to the lectures? How about a work from home veterinary course? Haptic training? Do we do we need a real animal? Could that be a it's thing? Definitely, the I think it's definitely got potential, but we shouldn't think that we can replace everything in person with virtual because you you just can't people interaction that's why there's 26,000 people here at the VMX conference in Florida because mm. it is that in person connection whether it's just the downtime chitter chatter or whether it's learning sharing experiences um you have to get hands on with things so you know digital tools can't replace in person care they never will we can't do we're never going to be able to do a virtual vaccine for example or deliver chemotherapy remotely you know these are um, really, really essential aspects of, of delivering care. Um, so potentially there'll be some more hybrid studying. I think that has been a, a thing for a long time, for sure. Back in mm-hmm. 20, 2005 to 2012, we were already recording all our lectures and accessing them online. Mm-hmm. Uh, so students were accessing remote um, studying then. We they ref, they reduced the curriculum down at the Royal Vet College, as I remember, to do fewer lectures, more self-study, more self-directed learning and group work mm-hmm. um, and more hands on. So I think it's been changing for a while and I'm sure it will change more in the future. But we we can't miss out that in-person bit for sure. I think I think you're absolutely right. Although I think we might well have um, re- remote chemotherapy at some stage. After all, we have remote diabetic therapy, don't we? You have um, insulin uh, injectors which stick on your arm and will respond yep. to uh, to changes in blood glucose. So, yeah, I think it could all come quite quite soon. What uh, are your thoughts on the the last um, changes in in veterinary practice in your lifetime? I love it, all of it. It's always good. Uh, it's very positive. I feel very good about the profession. No, hold on, wait. Um, like Boris Johnson, then. It <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was very, very positive stuff in a really uh, uh, sustainable way. Um, I, I think it has changed immeasurably, and that change has put lots more pressure on, on vets, particularly the younger vets. 
Uh, I was a young vet once, and uh, although I felt very pressured, I don't think I was as pressured as the vets coming out of university these days. Um, we we all hit the ground running. We all make our mistakes and uh, live live or die by them from a career point of view. But actually, you know, the the client expectations, the the patient needs are so much higher now than they were 25 years ago uh, when a busy night on call meant you, you hospitalized four or five cases put them on a drip and gave them a shot of something and uh, went back to check them the next morning now that was wrong it was right at the time that was what what was done it was the acceptable level of care these days you are completely in the wrong if you don't do a full workup including uh, ultrasound, x-rays, full bloods, uh, and possibly even biopsies at midnight. So those sort of pressures to, to new vets who, who are sure that they're going to get sued every single day of the week, who are also sure that they have to charge the clients an awful lot of money. It's a very expensive um, commodity, isn't it? Uh, and they're not sure whether they're worth that money, whether their time is worth that whether their knowledge is, is, is worth that. So the profession is fantastic. The things we can do are absolutely amazing. The resources we have, quite incredible. The pressures, wow, they are no good at all. They're, they're, they're huge, and I think they're breaking a lot of vets. So there we go. That was me. I think I think you're right. There's there's huge pressures on vet staff in general, vet teams. Um, yeah, sorry, when that, I say vets, I mean the whole the whole vet led team. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Something that's a real topic of conversation here in the states at the moment is accessibility of veterinary care. So reducing costs, um, location and geographical distances. It's really important that. You know, we we often say that the term gold standard is not helpful, and how we how we define adequate care, um, so that everybody across um, communities ha have access to pet care. Because you know, the Habri project, Habri.org, um, the Human Animal Bond Research, is fascinating in terms of pet ownership uh, increasingly important, as we've all seen in the last few years, and how. You know, it's it's not just a privilege to own a pet, but people you know need pets for so many reasons um, in their lives. And so, if we can improve accessibility of veterinary care, but whilst maintaining standards and mm. um, sustainable vet teams, then I think that is where we need to focus our attention for the future. I think you're right because the, the, the practices and um, you know, it's not just corporates; the individual practices as well recognize that, that there's money that can be made and, and rightly so but actually i think there's becoming an increasing divide between those who can afford uh veterinary care and those that can't but who aren't necessarily so impoverished uh to to, to um benefit from the pdsa or the blue cross or the rspca so but don't right. don't get me wrong. I don't I don't think we should be all working for free. This is not a race to the bottom. Well, this is we very <laughs> much need to increase our uh, improve our financial models in practice. Mm. Um, that is essential. 
but uh yeah the accessibility piece is really key i think it is i think it is mike what are you up to old pal me yes. oh well we're learning a lot but i thought it'd be really nice if we could condense some of that learning into condense it what do you mean into a shorter time into a sh- really short time to to help our regular listeners and and to you know i was i was hoping yeah, that jessica yeah. you know might be uh, might be prepared for that to to join well, us of course to, uh, to condense special... it into sort of a minute or so yeah that's exactly what i was thinking just a minute well not just yes, a minute i, I believe that thing has been taken by another <laughs> yeah just just a minute was, is, yeah but it's that sort of concept we call it 60 second cpd jessica have you have you come across it i have heard and i've also watched a few of your esteemed previous guests um imparting their wisdom and i'm not sure that um professional development should continue on my theme but i will maybe share some interesting tips and tricks um yeah. for for the listeners and and hopefully it's helpful Okay, Great. so you're, you're up for this here? Absolutely, yes. Fantastic. Let's give it a go. Okay. So what, what what would you like to do on your 60-second CPD then, Jessica? So I would like to share three tips and tricks about how to make the most of teleconsultations. Right, okay. okay. So 60-second CPD, Jessica May talking about three tips to maximise your telemedicine. If you can see the clock there, let's start yes. now. Let's go. So how do we set ourselves up to create a modern pet pet care ecosystem and meet the needs of our profession? And telehealth definitely can help with this. So first of all, we set ourselves up for success. We find a champion in the veterinary practice who can lead this project. We find our own room with a stable internet connection, uh, dedicated equipment, so you can't be interrupted for questions um, and prescriptions or consults on the side. Towards the end of a consult, in wrapping up, human medicine has done some really interesting research in asking the question anything else versus something else and of course something else is a much more open inviting question where we might pick up some more um, information or questions from the owner and be able to solve more problems and finally telehealth is a great feedback and learning opportunity where we can record our consults difficult challenging ones or really good ones reflect back just like teachers assess each other in the classroom and learn from those whether we're new grads um, the nursing team or seasoned professionals, and those are my three tips. Wow. That's Brilliant. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. It, it probably <laughs> wouldn't surprise you to know that we record stuff as well, but we never listen back. No, <laughs> never do. Never do. Best not. It's actually really <laughs> awkward for some people. They can't think of anything worse. But once you move past that, actually – it's a really, really good way of learning. Um, and I, I was sad when I remember that telling me that in their practice, the recording in the consult room is actually CCTV to protect the team. Um, so actually, if we look at this in a, in a positive light, we can use it as a, as a great learning resource. Yeah. 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 I, I just don't think I want to be reminded of the way I set up some questions. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. I, I like to think... I like to think that that's one of the things that our listeners enjoy. <laughs> well, it's got to be something. Well, it's got to be something. Because we have it? some listeners. We've no idea why. Wow. <laughs> some. How, how many is some? Ten? Or three, four thousand. Um, More than three, one. Three or four thousand. No, we've got about yeah. three or three and a half thousand, I think. 
It's an amazing, amazing podcast. Very loyal, loyal listenership. I think it is. I think it is. So tell us a little bit about Flexi now. Just a couple of minutes on Flexi. So I think Flexi really came out of a personal need for both Sylvia and I a number of years ago. We're both equine practitioners by background, and we got together. Um, I think it was on the phone to begin with, and we were both discussing careers and and how our um, careers were fitting together with life. And we both discovered that we we needed this thing called flexible working. Shock horror. And then we took the conversation wider and chatted to friends and colleagues and went to the Vet Stego Diversify conference, their first conference in London in, in person. And we found that this was a really general need. Um, there wasn't any specific group that needed it more than others. Everyone wanted it, but were finding it difficult to achieve. And so <laughs> since then, we have uh, tried to raise awareness of flexible working and understanding of flexible working as a, as a foundation. And now, of mm-hmm. course, we've got the BVA talking about it. Um, we've got a partnership with XL Vets, which is exciting and helping vets and vet teams to integrate flexible working in practices that's sustainable. Um, we can do it in the right way. It's fair um, and it can really help us to to move forward. So that's really what Flexi aims to do in um, providing tools, digital tools, um, whether it's managing complex rotors or just understanding where baseline zero is in order to to progress. Um, and all the way through to you know consultancy, it, this is a, a strong area for HR in terms of how they can facilitate flexible working, um, informal flexible working or formal flexible working. It's actually a statutory right after 26 weeks of employment for employees to be able to request it. Um, and rather than just say no or panic at that point, um, we need to help practice to understand how to go about addressing it and integrating it, implementing it. And most of the practices we've talked to so far are it's it's saying it's a working progress. It's a constant um, challenge. It, it, it's something we've done over the last few years of the practice, um, stemming from the time that, that you know, we had one of our vets went off on, on maternity leave and came back and uh, and said that she didn't feel she could work full time. And, and both the practice manager and myself thought, well, actually, she's too valuable to, to lose. We, we need her. How can we fit her in? We thought, well, actually, all we need to do is get another vet to take over the bits that she doesn't do um and we we now have um well out of the eight vets nine vets uh only three are full-time right so uh and then there's every reason to suspect those three will uh, uh go, go flexi time at some stage in the future when it suits them to uh but actually well, i think it works very well we, we managed to fit the road around to to I think please everyone. What they get You're is clearly doing an amazing job. I said, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, we it's a, it is a work in progress. And I'd be lying if I said that there weren't times we were overstaffed and there weren't times we we're understaffed. Mm. But what, what we have recognized is actually it's it's the only way it's gonna work for the practice in the future. We can't get full time vets anymore the numbers we want, the colour mm. we want. So we get Well, as you say, we we don't want to lose that talent. We also don't want to but, shut the door and make it very binary for veterinary professionals having to choose between having having a, a better balance 
uh, and and staying in the profession. Mm. It's it's mm. it really doesn't need to be like that. And yes, it's complicated, but it's it's not too challenging to to figure that out. And we always say that flexibility means something different to everyone. You've got this jigsaw of life and that jigsaw is constantly changing too. So what suits one person won't necessarily suit another. If we blanket rule a four day week for everyone, that's probably not going to work for some people. Yeah, Might yeah. work beautifully for yeah. others, but you know we can't just change the whole structure and make it fixed. That's not in the, um, in the nature of flexible working. Right. So uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's very important. So does Flexi work as a consultancy? You've got a, a toolkit, a roadmap, consultancy with 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 apps, with technology, new startup business. How how do you work? It is a new company, and we've we've been you know going for a few years. And Flexi's developing, leveraging technology to build digital tools to help practices. So, for example. Um, finding out where they start. So we've got a, a questionnaire um, survey. It's an assessment tool yep. where practices can f- work through this, the senior leadership, whether it's a director or a practice manager. This assessment mm-hmm. tool helps them to understand what flexible working means and and where they are doing things really well and where there's room for improvement. Um, right. And it gives you a score. It gives you a badge, which can be displayed on your website. Um, first of all, that's great for retention because it hopefully stimulates a conversation within the clinic about where are we and what are we doing. But also it's great for recruitment because it shows that, yes, we're a flexible practice. Um, this is our where we are now, but we're always trying to improve. So hopefully it will set practices apart from each other and you know highlight good places to work that are places that are really looking out for their teams and trying to make this a, a good way of working. And then in the future, developing more tools and the consultancy piece to support um, clinics in, in achieving this flexibility. So you do this nine to five Monday to Friday. So no, this is, this has been <laughs> what, what we call our side hustle. Um, but now becoming a, a more mainstream, um, you know, normal daytime <clears throat> job. Yes. Okay. Mm. So Syl- Sylvia is taking this forwards, um, which is very, very exciting. And we're always looking for partnerships. But really, we're here for practices and for our colleagues to um, to make sure that we're all here in the in the future. Amen to that. Amen. Great. But your CPD was was excellent, and I think um, it'll encourage people, hopefully, to uh, to try their hand or their phone at telemedicine. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, I could talk about it for days. <laughs> not, not in one minute, you can't. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it deserves a certificate. Have you got one? Oh, wow. Oh, by sheer coincidence, I have. Okay. So it this says... This is what he's prepared uh, tonight then, shall we? There you go. It says, certificate of seeing from afar and necessity being the MOI, the mother of invention. Because it's you know, the COVID necessity that pushed telemedicine. <laughs> So what do we, we have a chameleon on there, just in, in uh, remembrance of your uh, your chameleon. We mm-hmm. have a remote control. Uh, <laughs> and we have a couple of pictures of, of the British countryside, which you claim to you claim <laughs> you claim to like. I know <laughs> you like you love. And we'll, we'll talk about your hiking uh, uh, exploits in a moment, shall we? And um, yes. a, little, a little calf there. You've oh, that's that. very oh, kind. Thank oh, you. I, well, they, they often do because you can't eat them. Otherwise, can I um, can I upload that to one CPD on my 
my you record. Can. We think you so. can absolutely. Yeah, we think. Oh, 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 hang on, hang on to to fully qualified. Ah, uh, uh, yes, we do need to reflect. We do. Uh, we do. Do you have a reflective question there, Jessica? But could could you set a reflective question for our listeners so that they can qualify for their hmm. unit of CPD with the RCVS? Well, I I think we should all take a moment to reflect on the pandemic and the lessons that we've learned and how we can put those lessons to good use. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, good question. Do you have any guidance notes for that? I mean, again, I could I could talk about this for for a long time, but I believe that the RCBS has set out some nice questions by which we can ponder that. Okay. So, may, well, I would I would guide listeners to to look at those. Okay. Well, let's do that. Let's do that. Thank you very much. Good advice. Good advice, and a beautifully yeah. presented bit of uh, bit of CPD. <laughs> so, now, I, I, I segue briefly into into hiking. Hmm. And that's something that uh, I think is close to your heart, isn't it? Yes, no, I love I love walking, love getting outside. I want to know what these veterinary walking exploits are. Well, I think Paul Horwood uh, organises. I can't remember the name of the group, unfortunately, off the top of my head. But oh, no, oh there is a group, a isn't there? Very yeah, popular there is, group. There is a group, yes. uh, veterinary walking. I'm yeah. hoping to join them, but I haven't managed to yet. Yeah, but you mm. have joined veterinary ramblings. Mm. I have joined veterinary ramblings, I, of course. And, and that was kind of the segue I was uh, looking for because obviously we've, we've come into a few areas of mental health improvement here uh, I was kind of hoping you'd follow that and say well clearly I do enjoy hiking and a nice ramble to help my mental health <laughs> but never mind. No, I've completely up, missed fine. your that's link fine. it doesn't matter it was, it was a pretty fat, uh, pretty far-fetched uh, link <laughs> um, but I do enjoy so a good ramble you do and, and um, I guess you, you grew up on a farm uh, mm. and so you've always had a love for the country very much, yes. Um, I was a, a child who would go outside and be outside all day climbing trees. So um, going for a walk in the, the hills on the Welsh borders, or um, I have very fond memories of walking with a vet colleague um, and friend, Vicky Wise. We went on our lambing placement during um, mm. during vet school in uh, a lovely village called Tawin. Um, with a veterinary family, um, mm. Maggie and Hugh Williams. And uh, we spent glorious three weeks in unexpected sunshine on the Welsh coast. And wow. we, it was I remember it was reading about that in the paper. What, the sunshine? <laughs> yeah, the sunshine of the Welsh uh, coast for, for, for a week. Yeah. Once many upon a time. Now. Many years. 12, yes. 12 or so years back, was it? It was a while yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> you, you, you remember the time. Um, <laughs> But we, we had a lovely uh, day walking um, during the week on, on the hills and it was just blissful. You just couldn't, we w- couldn't have been happier with our ewes lambing on the fields below with mm. fresh air and sunshine. Um, I think we had fish and chips in the evening on the beach and then went back, back to the lambing shed. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. I used to love lambing. I like lambing. I, I, no, 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 no. Lambing. Especially with mints. Well, oh, you had to ruin it, didn't you, Mike? There we were, being all nostalgic about our lambing days. And you have to, mind you, a bit of mint sauce, eh? Yeah. Mmm. Mmm. Yeah. Very tasty. Yeah. yeah, you're not wrong there. Yeah. yeah. I, I got arrested for sheep worrying once. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they won't allow you back in Australia, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I was just walking through a field of, of, of sheep and lambs going, mint sauce, mint sauce, mint sauce. 
I'm not surprised. They probably ran over a wall or through a hedge probably. or escaped yeah. somewhere. Probably. Most people seem to do that. They, they do. They do. One of my, my favorite things last year, I think it was, was Clarkson's farm oh, and his ability to drive sheep with a drone. Uh, over walls and everywhere where they were, they weren't supposed to go. I think the drone even woofed through the speakers at the the sheep. I, I think uh, I think it did, didn't it? I just I love yep. Caleb. He, he makes it for Fantastic. me. Fantastic. Clark's yep. a new rat. <laughs> he gives very good feedback, very direct feedback. Mm, he does. He does. I think we we all need a Caleb in our lives, do we? <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, yeah, he you, needs you, his own show. There's not not a Caleb at all, but um, I suddenly realised you you know a friend of mine. Uh, Wolfgang, Wolfgang Dern. Yes, I do. And um, he's... hang on, hang on. What? What? A, a friend a fr- of yours. A friend of both of ours, then, Mike. Yeah, thank a friend you. of both of ours. Yeah, been my friend for longer. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> so now Wolfgang's one of the founding members, I believe, of the Virtual Veterinary Care Association. Or have I got that wrong? Is he just a hanger on? <laughs> no, not at all. And yes, he is. So um, at the end of last year, we founded the Virtual Veterinary Care Association European Affiliate. And for those of you who don't know the VVCA, they're a European um, telehealth focused organization set up about three years ago. And we thought that it'd be really helpful. They've got a Canadian chapter. It'd be really helpful if we you know, helped with a global conversation. Mm. Um, so I met Wolfgang originally um, at first vet, he he describes himself as a digital nomad. Um, so, you know, he's in a new country every week, which is, is very exciting. Yeah, whenever yeah. I speak to him, I'm never quite sure what country he's phoning from. Whenever uh, he dialed in online, he's in a different country, uh, yeah. which is yeah, it's great to see. And uh, so uh, he is one of the the small group of working the working party that we've got to to set up this organisation. So, does the organisation have a president? I don't think we have a president. Um, but we're, I'm, I'm leading or chairing the group at the moment. And, um, there are, there are a few of us who are all passionate about digital care in general, not just tele, telehealth, but digital care and how we can, um, use it and and help everyone to, to adopt it. That's excellent. Is there there a special chairperson's special hat? (laughs) I hope, um, (laughs) maybe one day we can, we can purchase one, maybe one of those big Mexican hats. Or, or oh, one of the okay. horned hats that Wolfgang wore in his uh, his year as president of the, of the WSAVA. Like a Viking it? hat with horn. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Well, I thought he hasn't a, told me about that. It was more like a First World War German hat with a spike on it, wasn't it, as I recall? <laughs> it was It was something quite amazing, wasn't it? Or whatever it was, we, we couldn't stop giggling when he showed it to us. <laughs> yeah. so, I wonder so where you, you get one of those. Yeah. So that's that's for the the Europeans. There's a Canadian chapter. Is there an American chapter? Because half of our listeners are in America. Ah, so the the association was founded in America. Right. Okay. So they right. are an American association, um, the VBCA, VBCA.org. Right. And I I um thought that it would be great to get Europe involved in the conversation, not just the UK. Um, because mm-hmm. we're not, we're all talking about the same thing and we can all learn from each other. So um, I think it's a great opportunity to all collaborate and um, have a, a great conversation. Mm. Excellent. Excellent. So, so actually you could then phone anyone as a, as a, as a client, you could phone anyone in the world. 
at you a convenient do. time for them to answer. There, there would be no more out-of-hours calls. So my experience in the UK is actually uh, fantastic in terms of managing time zones. Um, right. So you could have in the UK, this, that is, a, an Australian-based vet doing your UK night duties yep. during their daytime. So we know yep. that night work has mm. health challenges, especially long term. But if people are not needing to work necessarily um, at night so much, you can do the online shift in that way, um, mm-hmm. which I think is great. Going back to your point of owners being able to call anyone, I mean, they could they could call a family member in a different country who would potentially be able to give them some veterinary advice if, if they were a vet professional. But um, you do need to practice and be licensed in that jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. So in the UK, you have to be RCVS registered. Um, in the States, obviously, they've got different state licensing, but you need to have a state license in order to practice in that state. Um, so, yeah, there are a few restrictions. Do you, do, do you see that changing in the future? Do you see a, a global, a globally recognised veterinary uh, qualification? I mean, we definitely have qualifications which are broadly recognised, i.e., you know, as a UK vet, you can practice in many, many different countries, which is fantastic without further qualifications. But we do need a regulator. You do need to be accountable under certain law and professional regulation. And I'm not sure that on a global level, that mm. would be very easy to reach. Um, those, those of you who know the telehealth landscape in the States, it's individually state regulated as as well as you know general practicing um licensing so you have to it's much more detailed compared to just the uk where we obviously just have one regulator which makes things super simple Mm -hmm. um but we have to be aware of that so i i think on a global level we could we could all aim for world peace um but i don't think we're going to have world veterinary consulting (laughs) so so there'll be no um, peace in our time no, no uh, Neville Chamberlain of the veterinary profession. Well, I hope there'll be peace in our time, but veterinary profession consulting, I think we'll just have our have our own country licensing and keep things mm-hmm. simple for now. Hang on. <laughs> so there's a number of things you've mentioned here that are great opportunities. First off, I don't know whether we really saw into the future when we invented Greenwich Mean Time, which gave us the privileged position of sitting in the middle, meaning that Australia's up, they're going to bed, we're in the middle of our day, America's just waking up, etc., which gives access to to 24-hour medical care for for the UK via telemedicine. Mm -hmm. What is wrong with a UK vet, Julian, going and living in the mountains of Colorado and providing telemedicine services for your colleagues back in the UK? under the auspices of the RCVS, or Mm. heading off down under, living on Bondi Beach, and providing said same services for the UK veterinary profession. It's an amazing opportunity. It brings uber flexibility to the way we're working. Yeah, let, let's 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 go. I'll go to yeah. Oz. You go to Colorado. I don't really fancy Colorado. Colorado. Yeah, those beetles there that eat potato plants. Oh, fair enough. Mm. Sounds itchy. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. Only, only the only problem is, is there's no internet connection there. 
that could be an issue. <laughs> you do course, need internet. And of course, it's in Nevada. It's not in Colorado. Right. Well, I always say that if you're going abroad, obviously, we should never work on holiday. We need time out. But if you're going to live abroad or go for an extended period of time, then it can definitely mingle with traveling or, you know, a digital nomad lifestyle where you have your availability, you know where you're going to be available. You do. The only thing you need is a stable Internet. Um, And, you know, you don't necessarily need to be doing video consulting. You could be doing asynchronous um, text or video consulting or, or other way. So it really does widen the the scope. It's very Mm. exciting. Yes. Yeah. There you go. Work from home in, as you say, Colorado, Nevada. Yes, WFC. I told you I'd come up with some stupid things. That's a brilliant idea. That's a great idea. (laughs) People people are already doing it. Who do you write a letter to? Go on, how do you do it? (laughs) (laughs) I think you just book a flight, a one-way flight, and grab your passport. So where would you go? Ooh, good question. I think I would, I would go all over, but I think I'd probably start back in Asia somewhere because although I was over there in Hong Kong, I didn't do as much traveling as I wanted to. So I'd probably uh, branch out and go and do a bit more traveling over there. How about you? I think Malaysia. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's brilliant. I'll tell you, one thing I do like about this is is the is the circular nature of this evening. <laughs> well, we started in Hong Kong, yeah. And you said that if you were going to practice telemedicine and we we're going to move anywhere, you'd go back to mm-hmm. uh, to to Asia. So we, we've we've yeah. rambled. We've done a there and back, haven't we? Or is it a circular? We've done a circular, I think. We have indeed. Yeah. In any case, we haven't ended up somewhere needing a bus back home, have we? Which is always nice. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. So on that note, if I may, I'd like to say, Jessica May, thank you very much indeed for sharing the information on telemedicine and bringing us up to date. And and if you've enjoyed, don't forget to like and subscribe because it really does help. So on that note, Jessica May, thank you very much indeed. I'll raise a glass to you. May your dog go with you. Thank you very much. May your dog go with you. May your dog go with you. Thank you for having me.